Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a mathematician who has looked into the potential of computers to be creative. The images that are coming out of that, although there's some kind of rather kitsch sort of hallucinogenic images, still it gives us some insight into the way the AI is thinking. And I think this is the most exciting thing. The art that AI produces might help us to understand the subconscious, if I can call it that, of the AI, the bit that we don't understand. That was Marcus de Sotoy, Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University, who came into the studio to talk to me about his latest book, The Creativity Code, How AI is Learning to Write, Paint and Think. So welcome, Marcus. Now, a lot of people would say that computers cannot possibly be creative. How can a machine ever match the creative genius of a Mozart or an Anna Akhmatova or a Picasso? But in your book, The Creativity Code, you challenge many of the assumptions about what creativity means. So let's start with some definitions. What do you mean by creativity? Well, I chose a definition that Margaret Bowden suggested to me when we were on a committee looking at the impact of AI on society. And she defines it quite nicely as something which is novel. Well, computers are very good at making new things, but it should also be surprising. So it should sort of take us out of our comfort zone when we see it. And it should also have some value. Now, it's interesting because novel is kind of something you can judge quite cleanly, but value and surprise is something which is obviously very personal and a surprise to one person won't be a surprise for another. How you value something will depend on history. So I think it's interesting, how will a computer be able to produce something that it judges will be surprising of value and also will think that humans will find that? Well, I think we're in a new age and that's why I wrote this book, uh, The Creativity Now, because I think there's been a real sea change in AI because in the past, It was a kind of top-down coding where the programmer kind of knew what the computer was going to do. But now the computer is being programmed so that it can adapt and change with its interaction with its environment. And now we have an incredibly rich digital environment for it to learn on. And in particular, I think it can begin to learn the things which are surprising and have value to us. And therefore, it ultimately could produce things that we as humans regard as highly creative acts. And one example of this you give is the legendary Move 37 Game 2 of AlphaGo against Lee Sedol. Can you tell us about that? Why was that so surprising, which is one of your definitions of creativity? It is. So this is the story of AlphaGo playing Lee Sedol, a human against machine And Go, the ancient game of Go, was always regarded as something that computers would never be able to do. Partly because it requires a kind of intuition when you're playing it. You're never quite sure why you're making a move. I think this is why people think creativity is not something that a computer can do, because we don't even understand our own creativity. But what happened in this game two... Game one was a fairly conventional game. It just played better than Lisa Doll. Game two, something slightly different happened, because... In move 37, it played a move which your Go Master would slap your wrists if you played this move so early on because it played quite deep into the centre of the board on the fifth row in from the edge. You never do that early on. So all the commentators watching the game, I was watching it obsessively on YouTube, said, oh, it's made a mistake. Lisa Doll will be able to win the game now. So certainly a surprise 
But the value, here's the value, because by the end of the game, this move turned out to be absolutely crucial as the board got denser and denser. The fact that this stone was lying there ready to complete a kind of pattern ultimately won the game for AlphaGo. And I think games are great because you can judge value very cleanly because if you win the game, it's clearly got value. So I think this was very exciting because, first of all, it was a new sort of move. Secondly, and I think this is why AI will be really exciting for us as humans sort of extending our own creativity. It showed us how to play the game in a completely new way. We got sort of stuck on a peak, which we thought was the highest peak of the way to play Go. And actually, this is a kind of image I use a lot in the book, which is, yeah, we think we've reached the pinnacle. Yet actually, there's another mountain on the other side of the valley covered in fog at the moment. And the AI can reveal that to us. And so now we're playing the game of Go in a completely new way because of the insights of this computer. Does that suggest, though, that there are different types of creativity between machine and human? Because what was fascinating about that game as well was that I think it was in the fourth game in which Lisa Doll won. He played a move which was equally surprising in a way. And I think that when they played the game back to AlphaGo, they calculated that AlphaGo itself would have only had a 1 in 10,000 probability of playing that move. So human and machine were clearly thinking about creativity in very different ways in that sense. Is that right? Yes, I think that's what's so beautiful about this whole story. And it's the story I kind of kick the journey off because I think it shows the different elements of human creativity and machine creativity. And absolutely right. Lisa Doll was very clever. I think Lisa Doll in his first game, you see, what he thought was, OK, the AI will have learnt on human games of the past. So if I disrupt the expectations, I'll be able to win. But it hadn't done that. It had started on all the human games that are on the Internet, learnt from those. But then it had extended itself by playing itself. You know, two copies of the game just pushed itself beyond what we know as humans. So I think his first kind of idea was a good one, but it didn't work. His second idea, and I don't know whether he kind of knew this, but he, he went for a kind of all or nothing move, you know, sort of putting all the bank on black. And it was a move that was so low statistically as a move that would be made that the computer just kind of ignored it. And, and what's so funny is when the computer starts to go wrong, it goes so wrong. So it really revealed it was a computer rather than a human because it sort of started to fail the Turing test. The commentators were going, wow, look, it's just gone completely bananas. Um, now, you referenced earlier Margaret Bowden, and she has three different types of creativity in her definition. Could you explain to us what those three are and how computable you think each one of those is? Yes, I very much liked her sort of categorization of creativity. So she has exploratory creativity, which is taking the rules of the game as they are at the moment and kind of pushing those to the extreme. Can you um, give us some examples of that? Yes, I suppose something like, you know, if you think of the Baroque period in music, then I would say Bach kind of pushed things to the absolute extreme and then things kind of broke and we had a sort of Actually, the third category, the transformational creativity, where something new appears almost out of nothing, but things never appear out of nothing. So exploratory creativity is one which, of course, computers, I think, are very good at because, you know, one of the problems with humans is that we have limited hardware. At some point, our brains start to just not be able to push further. And that's, of course, I think when uh, Gary Kasparov was beaten at chess, the computer was able to just go much deeper into the game than he was able to hold in his head. And I think AlphaGo is another example of that. Then there's combinational 
creativity. And this is an interesting one because it's one I actually use a lot in my own mathematical work, which is taking two ideas which don't look like they have anything to do with each other and trying to see how they can feed each other to create something new. So an interesting example of that, I suppose, is something like fusion cooking that you take the ideas, you know, maybe the ingredients from one part of the world and the way of cooking from another, and you fuse those to create something new. And how good are computers at that, do you think? Well, actually, surprisingly, rather good. And there's some nice examples in the book. There's a very interesting guy called Francois Paché who does a lot of kind of computer creativity. And he has something called the flow machine. The flow referring to the kind of psychological states you often get into in creativity where somehow you're at the extreme of your expertise, yet you are able to cope. People talk about being in the moment and sort of just time goes away. So the flow machine is meant to capture creativity. And what it often does is to learn the style, say, of one composer, but apply it to the sound world of another composer. So you can get some really weird, like a, a blues, which generally is only in three chords. But if you expose it to kind of uh, 12 tone rows of Schoenberg, then you get this absolutely crazy sort of 12 tone blues being played. So a computer is, and especially with machine learning, it's able to understand style and sort of capture what the algorithms are behind that star, but then can just simply apply that to a different input data. Mm -hmm. So it's quite good at that, actually. It's the transformational creativity, the third sort, which I think is the kind of challenge, because this is the one where I sometimes refer it to, it's a bit like a, a phase change, where suddenly something goes from one state to a completely new state, where you've got water and suddenly you put enough heat in it, and it just totally changes into steam. And... These are often about breaking the rules. And I think in the past, people have thought, well, a computer can't do that because it's stuck within its own sort of algorithmic rule set. So how can it break out and do something completely new? And oftentimes people say this is the moment of genius where just something comes from nothing. And I think I want to kind of blow that myth of the idea of the genius where people talk about creativity in the past as a kind of act of God or the muses. And I think the point is, this is coming from something very deep down in our psyche, our subconscious. And yes, we may not be able to articulate where it comes from, but it's still an algorithmic process that is mysterious to us. And we call it something transformational. I mean, I guess that raises the issue of to what extent creativity is an individual or a collective uh, yes. accomplishment, isn't it? And so you quote Brian Eno, who has this concept of senius, which I rather like. Genius is a collective endeavour. Can you explain what he means by that? I think that very often if you look at a particular moment in history when something completely new has appeared, we often like to attach that to one particular person. But the context is so important in actually making that move forward. Yes, quite often there has to be one person who paints a painting, one person who writes a novel. But it takes a village to write a novel, actually. And any novelist will acknowledge that the books that somebody's read, the people they've met, the places they've lived, all of these feed into and should be recognised but never are. So that's the idea that Eno is talking about, that seniors, that we tend to glorify the individual, but often there's a huge amount of people in play. And this is why I think this is important to machine learning and AI, because it's kind of tapping into that seniors idea. It's saying, OK, I need to learn about the whole context of where we are at the moment with creativity and art and music and uh, the visual arts. And that is going to give me my material for my next move. And of course, that's 
how we do... All of us are creative. We all have to start from somewhere. We can't be creative in a void. We tend to have this image, don't we, of this great creative genius and whether your bath overflows or an apple falls on your head that gives you this flash of inspiration and creativity. But you're saying you think it is more woven into the context in which we live. Yes, but that said, I still think that there are moments for an individual which are those kind of transformational moments which mean we move something on to a completely different kind of way of thinking. And I recognise that, you know, my own work, certainly my own work, you know, I depend very much on the people that I've read, the people I've spent time with. But I recognise the moments, for example, when I was working at the Max Planck Institute in Bonn, I had one of these flashes where I just wrote down something. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Something which I thought, wow, that's completely new. I combined, it was a really example of a combinational creativity. And I do regard that as a flash and a moment when our subject completely changed. And I talk quite a lot about my own creativity in the book, because as much as being a book about AI and its impact on you know the world around us, it's also a very personal story about, well, how much is my subject, which actually looks like it should be one of the first to go. It's a subject full of logical moves. It's a bit like chess in its behaviour. Surely by now, a computer should be able to prove mathematical theorems. But I try and illustrate why I think maths actually has as much of the creative arts as the useful sciences in it. And therefore, looking at my own acts of creativity are quite useful to see, well, how could have a computer come up with this? How could AI do this? What is the most creative thing that you think a computer has come up with in any field? I mean, we've had computer-generated pictures, we've had computer-generated compositions like Bach, we've had writing as well. What is the most creative? Where is the leading edge of this at the moment, do you think? The surprise for me was how far away we are from getting AI to be creative with the written word. That was a surprise to me because I thought there would be so much data for it to learn on, but it doesn't seem to have any sense of global structure. And we've had open AI producing this kind of weapons-grade writing system, which it won't release just recently. Music, I think, is somewhere which is very amenable to this kind of AI creativity. It's a very kind of closed system. It's very abstract. It's full of patterns. And so that's somewhere where I think AI is being quite successful. Again, it sort of suffers from being unable to have a kind of global arc to a piece. So there's some nice examples of a jazz continuator that's able to do kind of call and response with a human jazz player. And in that case, I think that was an exciting story because what it shows is the jazz AI improviser was revealing new ways for the human to play. Mm. And I think that, for me, is the exciting thing. Very often, we as creative humans get stuck in our ways of doing things. We start behaving too much like machines and the machine might help us to reveal new things. I think the visual arts are perhaps the most successful. And I rather like this idea of something called a creative adversarial network, which is instead of having just one algorithm painting, you have two algorithms working against each other to create something new. So one algorithm is the creator algorithm. 
It learns on the art of the past, the different styles. It's quite a good art historian, actually, because it can classify a painting and say quite well what sort of period, what kind of style it is. But it's then tasked with trying to make something which doesn't fit into any of those styles. But it also has to make something which is still recognisably art, so it isn't just a kind of chaos. So it's trying to bridge a gap between something new but not too new. The discriminator algorithm is tasked with trying to say, well, no, I still recognise that as an old style. You know, you haven't gone far enough or that isn't art at all. And the competition between these two algorithms, almost going back to making things into a game, which AI seems to be very good at, has produced some interesting examples. And I talk about some examples from a team in Rutgers that were shown at the Basel Art Fair. And humans did respond quite warmly and emotionally to these paintings. But for me, I think the most interesting is art that, although outwardly looks rather kitsch and you know not good art for us as humans, the point is this art from something called Deep Dream, Google has been very good, and AI in general, in producing visual recognition software. It can now take an image and say, that's a cat in there, that's a Christmas tree, that's a turkey. But we want to know how it's learned to do that. And this is one of the challenges of this new AI, is that actually we don't really understand quite how it's making its decisions because it's learnt and changed and evolved. So getting this AI to just give it a random kind of load of pixels and say, well, what do you see in this picture? So that then dials up the kind of, you know, like the same game we play when we look at the clouds in the sky, what do you see? And then the images that are coming out of that, although there's some kind of rather kitsch sort of uh, hallucinogenic images still it gives us some insight into the way the ai is thinking and i think this is the most exciting thing the art that ai produces might help us to understand the subconscious if i can call it that of the ai the bit that we don't understand just as art for us as humans is actually about that well you're going into really interesting territory talking about the subconscious of the ai you're going to get into terrible trouble with a whole bunch of philosophers for talking about that. absolutely but i think this is key actually because i think ai is moving you know a lot of philosophers will say that that's a misuse of the term but i think it's meant to be a bit sort of challenging because i don't see any reason that this ai won't at some point achieve a level of consciousness After all, what are we? We're just a bunch of atoms put together. And I don't think there is anything mysterious that we're missing yet. It is just an understanding of, you know, how do you put those together to make consciousness? Yeah, deep, mysterious problem. And maybe we'll never be able to know whether something's truly conscious. I mean, how do I know that you're conscious? How do I know that the listeners are conscious? I have to kind of assume that because you're made like me that you're probably having a similar consciousness. It's a hard problem. I think it is a hard problem. It's technically called the hard problem. Mm. But I think that we will have to meet this challenge as AI becomes more and more sophisticated. It might start to achieve a level of consciousness. And a philosopher like Daniel Dennett anyway would say that all the synapses in our brains, the neurons that are we think the source of our creativity are anyway mechanical or automatic creations. Aren't they? And they're kind of robots. Exactly. I think this is why, you know, I... I kept on sort of going between the two camps thinking, well, look, there's no way that computers can ever achieve, you know, they can do things which are good enough. I heard that phrase so many times talking to people in AI. It's good enough for music, for an advert or a computer game. It's good enough for a business report, but it's not going to be Tolstoy. It's not going to be Mozart. But on the other hand, what is a Tolstoy and a Mozart? It is just, as you say, a very beautifully put together system of, Neurons and synapses, which has been exposed to an extraordinary amount of data from our past. 
And I think the challenge for me is, is it possible to reverse engineer that? Or actually, will AI have to go through the millions of years of evolution that we've been through? Is it something we can't fast track? It's probably not enough just to look at the data that we've produced. And I think that's really what you see when you come to the written word. Because although AI is quite good at translation, it's good enough for translation, but it's not got the subtleties. And there's an interesting challenge, something called the Winograd challenge, which is, you know, the ambiguity of a word in a sentence, which we seem to be able to pick out very easily, partly because of just context. And an AI just fails completely on this because it hasn't got that broader context. And Noam Chomsky always talks about the way that the human brain seems much more hardwired than we realise for language. A child needs to be exposed to very little data before it can master language. And so I think that's a challenge that this machine learning is very exciting because we can push a lot of data through it and it learns and is really doing extraordinary things. But data may not be good enough. We may have to know how these things are being done in our brains to really get good AI. Now, you were talking there about ambiguity. And one of the areas in which ambiguity is most apparent is humour. I mean, humour has, I think, been called the final frontier of AI because it mixes psychology, cultural context, linguistic ambiguity, presentation and performance. And in fact, there was a mathematician, John Allen Paulus, who wrote a book on mathematics and humour where he tried to analyse the structure of humour, but concluded that it was extraordinarily difficult for a computer ever to mimic humour because of all of those different elements, those human elements. What do you think about that? Can a computer be funny? I think it can in certain contexts. And actually, in some ways, I think humour is quite related to transformational creativity because we find something funny because expectations are set up. And then what the comic does is to completely disrupt those expectations and take you somewhere new. And your response is often to laugh. But I have seen some interesting examples of playing on words. It can learn the sort of idea of playing on words. And if it understands multiple meanings for things, it can come up with some quite clever plays on words. So those are quite good. I, I think I that... can give you one example of that. Oh, that, go that... for it. Yes. So, what do you call a murderer with moral fibre? I don't know. What do you call a murderer with moral fibre? A serial killer. There you go. You see, that's lovely. Is that, that funny? I think that it falls into a certain category of kind of dad humour, I think, actually. So maybe <laughs> AI is very good at dad humour. But on the other hand, you, you sort of say, oh, yeah, that's quite a cute. And, you know, there are lots of those sort of jokes around. And those are the ones I think that AI has been very good at. I hadn't heard that one before. actually. But I think humour is quite interesting in this context, because I think when we are shown something and we respond to it emotionally, and I have some stories of people listening to music and saying, oh, how wonderful. Then they get told it's created by AI and it totally changes their response. They say, oh, yes, well, it was a bit sort of shallow and empty. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, so interesting, the context. So I think humour is a really interesting one, because if you laugh at a joke, it's very hard to take that away. You laughed at that joke. And yet now I'm telling you it's by an AI. Has that invalidated your laugh? So I think that knowing whether something has been produced by AI certainly changes our engagement with it because we think, well, no, I, I thought I was engaging with an internal world of another human being and that's why I'm warm to it. Now you're telling me it's nothing more than a kind of rule set? Yes, I mean, there's a real sense of denial. Saying a computer can be creative is almost offensive, isn't it? There's a huge kind of backlash Absolutely. against this. Why, I think why this is, is Well, I think it, it's the one thing that, you know, it, there's been such an assault of AI on everything that we can do. It's going to be our doctors, it's driving our cars, it's going to be our lawyers, it's already making judgments on the convictions for people in court. 
you know, we're trying to look out for what's the thing that we can really hang on to. That's partly why I wrote this book, because I think creativity is something we regard as really part of being human. And in some ways, I, I, I think it is. I mean, I sort of towards the end of the book, perhaps revisit the definition of creativity and say, well, perhaps that's a rather capitalist take on creativity that <laughs> Margaret Bowden has come up with, you know, value and surprise and new and and actually, you know, psychologists will talk about creativity as trying to negotiate our human engagement with the world around us and our fellow humans. So it is something that I think we have always thought as something computers can get nowhere near. But we thought the game of Go was also like that. And it's been that. OK, that's you know a very closed environment. But this book is about, well, how much can computers be creative? And I think there are a lot of surprises waiting for us. Now, you end the book with this fascinating idea about machines may be able to acquire some form of consciousness, although it might be different from the consciousness that we experience. Although, as you said before, how the hell do I know that you're conscious in the same way as I am? And if that is the case, then it might be possible for us to see different forms of creativity created by the machines. We might even be able to experience what it feels to be like a machine. Can you talk a bit about this? I think this is really important going forward. I mean, I think it's be, you know, many, many years before an AI really has consciousness. But even now, it's making decisions about things. And we don't really understand because of the way it's changed and evolved has making those decisions. So already, I think we're needing to get into the mind or the, the workings of that machine to really appreciate what it's doing. So I think already we're meeting that. And I think the creative acts that a machine is already making are giving us some insight. But ultimately, I think that AI will become conscious and it will be a very different consciousness, I think, from our own. And that's the challenge. Will we be able to really understand it? And I end with that famous quote by Wittgenstein saying, if lions could speak, we wouldn't be able to understand them. And that's the point. It will be different from ours. Already ours vary, but we're built in a very similar way. The AI consciousness will be very different. And I think it's art. Just as the novel is our best way of getting inside another human being, I think the art that this AI will produce will be our best fMRI scanner for understanding the consciousness of a machine. So for a while yet, as a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, you will be enhanced. Um, your intelligence will be augmented by AI, but it's unlikely that a machine is going to replace your job just yet. I think that's right. And I think you've said something very nice there, which is, you know, AI was meant to be artificial intelligence. But I think this idea of it being augmented intelligence is really how we should translate those two letters. That going forward, the book shows so many examples of how humans working together with machines can make so much more progress than just humans on their own but interestingly as well just computers on their own and that i think it's a journey together not against each other thank you very much marcus thank you we'll be back with another episode of tectonic next week in the meantime do let us know what you think of the show you can email us at tectonic at ft.com and if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.